most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, December 8th, 2022, the 687th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast on a wide range of podcast platforms, including Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find all the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and of course, the merch site by visiting linktree.com. Slash, I'm your moderator. So let's begin with a story that hasn't caught a whole lot of people's attention yet, but could become something massive before the end of the year. And that is the release of the JFK files. We are told that that's happening a week from today on December 15th. And the media has begun to seed narratives in an attempt to soften the blow of that release for the regime. This is from Newsweek on Tuesday. New documents shed light on CIA's connection to Lee Harvey Oswald. A core of researchers looking into the 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy say they have unearthed proof his alleged assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was involved in an operation by the CIA mere months before the killing, reigniting questions about whether Oswald truly was alone in his decision to kill the youngest man ever elected president. So they have unearthed new proof as if it's some archaeological dig that they've been conducting for the last 60 years. And finally, they have gotten down into the stony earth, painstakingly digging through layer after layer of sediment as if they're Tim Robbins slowly chipping away at his cell walls in Shawshank Redemption. They've finally reached the point where the evidence is just becoming visible that something else was happening with the JFK assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone gunman, was a CIA asset. Who knew? In a Tuesday press conference at the National Press Club, Jefferson Morley, a veteran of the D.C. press corps and a preeminent expert on JFK's assassination with the Mary Farrell Foundation, told reporters that he and attorneys with the foundation obtained documentation relating to a still classified covert operation approved by senior CIA officials three months before Kennedy's death that suggested the agency used Oswald for intelligence purposes several weeks prior to the shooting. Well, who are the senior CIA officials? And how much were they dealing with George Herbert Walker Bush? This is an extraordinarily serious claim, and it has profound implications for the official story. Morley said Tuesday morning in Washington, the CIA knew far more about the lone gunman than they are admitting even today. So this story deserves the closest possible scrutiny. Well, if it deserves the closest possible scrutiny, why are you incorporating the false narrative 
that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman. The document, one of several researchers obtained this month as the result of an October lawsuit, is a precursor to a fuller release of documents anticipated by the National Archives this month, and that is supposed to be by December 15th. The mandated release of records dates to a 2021 memo by President Joe Biden's administration ordering the release of all documents related to the JFK assassination after several delays by agencies like the CIA and the FBI. Oh, really? They've been delaying the release? It's been 59 years. This is basically the process they tried to pull with the vaccine documentation. Attorneys for the Mary Farrell Foundation argued that the agencies have illegally stalled the release of more than 16,000 additional documents related to the case over concerns they could potentially compromise the names of individuals and the methods used in intelligence gathering activities more than a half century ago. Sources and methods, always sources and methods. We can't tell you the truth about anything because it will compromise all of the means we use to lie to the American public. Don't you see? And if the American public realize that the CIA and the FBI are lying all the time, well, it would make it so much harder to lie all the time. Newsweek reached out to the CIA for comment. Why would they want to hide that? Because it's embarrassing. Larry Schnapf, a professor of law at New York University who has served as the foundation's attorney, told Newsweek, but embarrassment is specifically a term the JFK Records Act provides for. It says that embarrassment is not grounds for postponement, and it shouldn't be. But it's not really embarrassment they're worried about. What they're worried about is protecting the legacy, probably, of George Herbert Walker Bush, because then that intersects the legacy of all presidents since the JFK assassination, who actually had access to the real information and participated in lying to the American public. Donald Trump is the only person who really has pushed disclosure of all this forward. That the CIA knew of Oswald is not a smoking gun. It has already been revealed the federal government knew more about the circumstances surrounding the Kennedy assassination than it acknowledged publicly, beginning with the National Archives release of a trove of previously classified documents relating to the assassination in 2017, as well as the release of a number of documents detailing Oswald's history in 2021. It's honestly amazing to me that the people who have been alive since then have just allowed for this to continue this way, just assuming that the story they got from the television and from the authorities 60 years ago is just close enough to write. The details don't really matter. And in the meantime, we've seen story after story just filled with lies from law enforcement and intelligence and the communist factions within the government and the deep state. They don't want the American people to have this knowledge because if the American people had this knowledge, well, they wouldn't trust any of those people anymore. And then their whole agenda would break down. And it seems like we may be approaching that moment pretty quickly. And its existence does not prove a CIA plot to kill the president, as some theories have speculated. Oh, yes. What an important point you're making, Newsweek. You wouldn't want anyone to think that the CIA had something to do with it, even though they knew Lee Harvey Oswald and worked with him and then went ahead and blamed him for the assassination and then killed him. But sure, put this statement out, say it very authoritatively, even though it might prove to be wrong in a mere nine days or maybe a couple of weeks. Who knows how long it'll take people to sift through those documents. And apparently there are some that will still be held back because those ones are just way too dangerous. But the document, one of 10 that researchers believe was improperly withheld from the initial release, helps underscore what the government has so far refused to acknowledge and why public mistrust over the truth of the Kennedy assassination continues to persist nearly 60 years later. 
And we live in a strange world that the public trusting the government is something that is promoted and that it's like assumed that there's any condition under which the public should trust their government. There is no condition ever where you should trust the government. You can accept what the government is saying after you have verified it is true, but that doesn't mean you just start trusting them. Citizens should be verifying everything. If true, the newly released documents appear to contradict the government's claims that it had no knowledge of Oswald prior to the killing, outlined at the time of Kennedy's murder by an apparent communist sympathizer and in the years following his death. In a previously classified 1975 deposition on Oswald's potential involvement in the case, former CIA director Richard Helms claimed that Oswald was, quote, certainly not an agent of the CIA, was, quote, never used by the CIA, and that the agency could find, quote, no evidence that Oswald had any connection with the CIA. So that's a lie that has now persisted for 47 years. In other instances, they said independent research has confirmed other discrepancies in the official narrative around the involvement of figures like George Joanides, or is it Ionides? I don't know. A now deceased CIA agent who had intimate involvement with the group of communist revolutionaries Oswald had been in contact with prior to the killing. Joanides notably withheld information about his role from congressional investigators seeking answers about Kennedy's death. It's almost like nobody wanted to solve it. Ultimately, the release of the documents is not just about confirming or not confirming whether a conspiracy theory is true. It's about whether the government lied about what it knew. Well, that answer has always been obvious. This is an opportunity for the CIA to come clean. Former CIA officer and senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, Rolf Moat Larson, said Tuesday, Not because the CIA was involved in Kennedy's assassination, but because the CIA understands that there is still doubt as to what happened and whether there were people inside the CIA or any other parts of the U.S. government who might have been involved in this horrific conspiracy to kill the president. Yeah. Was it George Herbert Walker Bush? And has he compromised every other president after that? Have they all been part of the same thing installed by the CIA in order to protect the CIA's secrets and do the CIA's bidding? Wow, that would be just so hard to believe. What a conspiracy theory. To this day, the federal government has maintained that Oswald acted alone and had no connection with the CIA. The federal government has also denied that Oswald had any connections to communist organizations in Cuba or to organized crime cells in the U.S. that could have had motivation for Kennedy's death. But given the geopolitical context of the era, concerns over a communist governmental presence in Latin America, a potential shift in U.S. policy toward Vietnam, some still believe the narrative is not to be dismissed. Oh, those crazy people just holding on to that still undismissed narrative. To this day, Morley suggests that the CIA is still hiding 44 documents known to exist in Joannidis's personal file that he said will shed light on his secret activities between 1963 and 1978, including information about a CIA operation involving Oswald, he said, quote, has never been disclosed. Whether those documents are released this month, Morley said, is the true test of whether the federal government is prepared to acknowledge the truth about its involvement in Kennedy's death. I'm not crazy about the term smoking gun, Morley said. I think that's a bit of a cliche. It's not a term that investigative reporters use. Yeah, you see, we're going to be way more serious than say things like smoking gun. (laughs) The document proving that the CIA and Lee Harvey Oswald were working together. That's not a smoking gun, at least not. Literally, it's not a literal smoking gun, but in the figurative sense, that absolutely is a smoking gun. If you've maintained for 60 years that you did not know someone and then a document comes out conclusively proving that you did, it's a smoking gun that you've been lying. He goes on. But in this case, 
It's appropriate that what we're talking about here is not smoking gun proof of a conspiracy to kill the president. We're talking about smoking gun proof of a CIA operation involving Lee Harvey Oswald that the CIA is still concealing in 2022. You see, they're probably not connected at all. This body of records has profound implications for the official story of the assassination. Is the undisclosed Oswald operation evidence of CIA complicity in JFK's assassination? Is it evidence of incompetence and understanding the threat Oswald posed to the president? Only full disclosure on December 15th can resolve that question. I wonder what other prominent political families and prominent American families outside of politics might soon see their public image change substantially. Now, I mentioned the fact that they are seeding the narrative here because it seems pretty clear to me that what they're doing is trying to soften the blow that will come later. They're going to drip out little pieces so that by the time you get the big thing, you already think, yeah, I mean, everybody already knows that and nothing happened. That is part of the PSYOP, by the way. Every time you find yourself thinking that, understand that you have been psyoped. When information like this comes out, the first thought should not be, yeah, but we already knew this. Who cares? Nothing's going to happen. It should be, maybe I already knew this, but there are plenty of people out there who don't know this and need to. They need to know this. And perhaps once they know this, it might shake their faith in these institutions just a little bit. And once their faith in these institutions has been diminished, well, maybe they're going to be more open to understanding what other terrible things these institutions have done, what other lies they've been told. The story itself is not the only important factor. And what happens as a direct result of that story's release is not the most important factor. Stories like this have the potential to affect the way we understand our relationship with the government and the way we understand our relationship with our own past. This stuff matters a great deal. And there's a reason why they are trying to soften the information that comes out and trying to distract people. And this story's no coincidence. In fact, Karine Jean-Pierre got asked about the release of the JFK files in the press room of the White House yesterday. It's related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy is looming. It's December 15th. Um, is that declassification still on track, um, or will the administration seek to extend? <laughs> I don't have a, an update for you on that particular uh, question on declassif declassification of those documents. Uh, once we once we have more to share, we certainly will. I don't have anything to preview at this time. That's convenient. They simply don't know. Hey, it's a week from now, and I am the mouthpiece for the illegitimate president. But you know, we just don't have any idea what's happening. We don't know what's coming out. Maybe nothing. Maybe nothing will come out. We'll see. Maybe we'll be able to stop it somehow. But either way, we don't think of it as any big deal. I mean, we'll just see what happens. It's probably better to not pay attention to it at all. I mean, it's not a it's not a big deal. Sure thing, Kami. Sure thing. Now, let's move from the historical to the global. This is from the World Health Organization's website yesterday. WHO member states agreed to develop zero draft of legally binding pandemic accord in early 2023. Member states of the World Health Organization today agreed to develop the first draft of a legally binding agreement designed to protect the world from future pandemics. They're going to make an agreement and that agreement is going to protect the world from a future pandemic that their friends start and then create the vaccine for. This zero draft of the pandemic accord rooted in the WHO constitution will be discussed by member states in February 2023. Today's agreement by the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body, comprised of WHO's 194 member states, 
was a milestone in the global process to learn from the COVID-19 pandemic and prevent a repeat of the devastating impacts it has had on individuals and communities worldwide. The IMB gathered at WHO headquarters in Geneva from 5 to 7 December for its third meeting since its establishment in December 2021, following a special session of the World Health Assembly. So the devastating impacts it has had on individuals and communities worldwide. You know what places were the least impacted by the pandemic? The places that did not go along with the World Health Organization's recommendations at all. Those were the places that had the best results. And that includes, of course, the places around the world that did not roll out a huge vaccination campaign. The body today agreed that the INB's bureau will develop the zero draft of the pandemic accord in order to start negotiations at the fourth INB meeting scheduled to start on 27 February 2023. This draft will be based on the conceptual zero draft and the discussions during this week's INB meeting. The INB Bureau is comprised of six delegates, one from each of the six WHO regions, including the co-chairs, Mr. Roland Dreis of the Netherlands and Ms. Precious Matsoso of South Africa. Countries have delivered a clear message that the world must be better prepared, coordinated and supported to protect all people everywhere from a repeat of COVID-19, said Mr. Dreis, co-chair of the INB Bureau. The decision to task us with the duty to develop a zero draft of a pandemic accord represents a major milestone in the path toward making the world safer. Fellow INB Bureau co-chair Ms. Matsoso said government representatives stressed that any future pandemic accord would need to take into account equity, strengthen preparedness, ensure solidarity, promote a whole of society and whole of government approach and respect the sovereignty of the countries. So you see, they are creating a document, an agreement that all of the member states will sign on to. They will say that our country will abide by the World Health Organization's recommendations and requirements for pandemic response anytime the World Health Organization declares a pandemic of public concern or whatever their new catchphrase is. But also we're going to respect the sovereignty of countries right after they give us all of their sovereignty. Once they have given us all of their sovereignty, of course, we're going to respect it because it will be our sovereignty at that point. And we promise to cherish their sovereignty and the way we are going to show how much we respect and cherish their sovereignty is by making the best decisions for everyone and making sure everyone follows those decisions. Remember, it's a whole of society and whole of government approach. We take over your whole society. We take over your whole government and we promise that all our decisions will represent the best science, the latest research. We know how to handle pandemics. You got to trust us. I mean, we just said a little bit ago that the COVID-19 pandemic, well, that was a disaster, but that's because people didn't trust us enough. They didn't give us enough of their sovereignty. If they had, oh, we would have had such a much better pandemic. You would already love your new normal so much more if everyone had just done what we said. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on human lives, economies, and societies at large must never be forgotten, says Ms. Matt Soso. The best chance we have today as a global community to prevent a repeat of the past is to come together in the spirit of solidarity, in a commitment to equity, and in the pursuit of health for all, and develop a global accord that safeguards societies from future pandemic threats. 
The WHO Pandemic Accord is being considered with a view to its adoption under Article 19 of the WHO Constitution, without prejudice to also considering, as work progresses, the suitability of Article 21. So what we need is a global accord for the global community. This is the World Health Organization. Okay, it's like the CDC, but for the entire world. And it's funded by Bill Gates. And the director of the WHO is Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who is not a doctor, who is known for covering up various health events around the world, who was part of a terrorist organization called the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front and helped sell Ethiopia out to China. So that's the guy that runs the WHO. And so that guy and his partners are going to create this global agreement. They tell you right on the website what they're doing. Once again, we are taking the sovereignty of nations away and having them subsumed into a global order. They're not shy about it. They're not bashful about it. They're happy to tell you about it. And that's why they're telling you about it on their own website. All you have to do is listen. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. If you want to know what the rest of their agenda is, you can read it on the World Economic Forum's website or the United Nations website. Just look up Agenda 2030 and you'll see it all. The statement from Ms. Matsoso could have been made by Klaus Schwab or any of these other people. It's just slogan after slogan, buzzword after buzzword, equity, strengthen preparedness, ensure solidarity, promote a whole of society and whole of government approach. How do any of those things help to thwart a pandemic? And of course, they don't. They just make these things up because all of these principles, once you've accepted them as actual achievable goals that they're really attempting to strive for, well, you'll accept anything that they describe as moving us closer to those goals. Ensure solidarity. What does that mean? Making sure that you have a rock solid commitment by every nation to do whatever the WHO says? Yes, that's exactly what they mean. None of this is new. They've said it over and over again. It's time for us to all learn the lesson. One world global government. That is the goal. The only possible one world global government is an oppressive communist regime. It is global communism. There will be no nation. And without sovereign nations, sovereign individuals cease to be. The whole point of the global government is to get absolutely everybody on the same page. There's no room to be on a different page. And once they're able to track everything you do and assign you a social credit score, that dictates your ability to use the cashless central bank digital currency. Being on another page isn't an option, even practically speaking. And the timing of this is interesting because today, this is from the Daily Mail, the FDA approves unpopular bivalent COVID shot for babies and encourages parents to get their child vaccinated before the holidays. Apparently, they are trying to create their own dark winter of illness and death, and they want the dying people to be babies now. U.S. health officials today approved Pfizer and Moderna's bivalent COVID vaccines for babies in a move bound to draw criticism. The FDA has greenlit plans for the updated shots to be given as part of a three dose course for children aged six months to four years. Agency officials said they encourage parents and caregivers to get their child vaccinated, especially as we head into the holidays and winter months. Children have never, ever, ever been vulnerable to COVID-19. Not ever. In fact, they can't prove that a single healthy child has died. 
in every situation where they have marked a child down as a COVID death, the death was caused by other things. If you think I'm wrong about that, you can go back and watch the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, admit under testimony that she can't point to a single case of a healthy child dying from COVID-19, but they want to inject babies after knowing that the vaccines cause, among many other things, myocarditis and stillbirths and reproductive issues. That's what they want to give to babies, destroy their heart, destroy their ability to reproduce. Hey, they might even die right away. And it's not going to be the vaccine. We're going to call it SIDS. We're going to call it sudden infant death syndrome, just like we now have sudden adult death syndrome. But that's not related to the vaccine either. It comes after a study found the bivalent vaccines are significantly weaker against a rising COVID variant expected to become dominant in the U.S. in months. Anthony Fauci was just on the television the other day saying that the bivalent booster is actually extremely well matched to the new variant. Now, that's not a scientific term. It's just something that he made up. It's a subjective term, and it probably means nothing. He's got absolutely no data to back it, and that's why he doesn't share the data. But... This is what the narrative called for. So that's what he's saying. He is, after all, a vaccine salesman and a Nazi doctor who is probably singularly responsible for more death than anyone in the history of humanity. Now, sticking with our global theme, what is happening in Central and South America? And a hat tip to an account on Telegram called End Times for compiling this. It's pretty amazing to see what's actually happening in the world when you look at the big picture, when you can connect a bunch of stories and understand that something truly significant is developing right now. So the End Times account wrote, if you think all of this is a coincidence, you haven't opened your eyes yet. And they list four stories from Brazil, Argentina, Peru, and El Salvador. And I want to go through each of these because while individually they might just seem like something that could be happening. Okay, something's happening somewhere. That's fine. I get it. Something's always happening somewhere, blah, blah, blah. Together, these stories speak to something much larger. So let's start with El Salvador. This is from Sunday in France24.com, but it has been reported far and wide. Salvadoran troops surround a major city in crackdown on gangs. I actually discussed this with Sean Morgan on his show on American Media Periscope on Monday. Around 10,000 Salvadoran army troops and police officers surrounded the populous city of Soyapango, on the outskirts of capital San Salvador, as the government stepped up its fight against criminal gangs, President Nayib Bukele announced Saturday. The operation was part of a state of emergency declared by Bukele earlier this spring following a surge in gang violence. As of this moment, the municipality of Soyapango is totally surrounded, Bukele said on Twitter, adding that 8,500 soldiers and 1,500 agents have been deployed. The president had announced last month a plan to use troops to surround cities while house by house searches are conducted for gang members. Soyapango is the first city subjected to that approach. And let's hope we see a lot more of this in other countries around Central America. And hey, how about Mexico, too? At some point, the cartels are going to have to be taken out, right? This is how that looks. Early Saturday, soldiers and police took up positions on all of the city's access roads, allowing no one in or out without first being searched. Bukele said uniformed officers would be removing one by one all the gang members who are still there. Since Bukele declared the state of emergency in March, more than 58,000 suspected gang members have been arrested, though humanitarian groups have questioned what they say can be heavy handed tactics. You got that? So left wing communist globalist activists are out there saying that the tactics for capturing these gang members, oh, they're actually capturing innocent people. So the whole thing needs to be stopped. 
It's basically one massive re. Sayapango, one of the country's largest cities, has long been considered unsafe due to gang activity. A few months ago, the authorities began removing the graffiti that gangs used to mark their territory. Sayapango Mayor Nersi Montano said earlier this week that government actions in the city had brought an enormous improvement in safety. The nationwide state of emergency, which allows detention without court order, followed a surge in violence that claimed 87 lives between March 25th and 27th. Despite opposition from humanitarian groups, the emergency regime was extended by Congress to mid-December. Now, I imagine I've said this on the podcast before. I know I've said it on other shows, but the way I conceive of cartels is as private armies of the global communists. The cartels exist to conduct the criminal enterprise of the global communists, whether that's an international drug trade or international human trafficking or sex trafficking, the slave trade at the southern border, the slave trade being run in other regions of the world, cartels and quote unquote terrorist groups operate all of this. They are the private militaries of the global communist criminal enterprise. And so when I see crackdowns like this, that's the framing through which I view these issues. The post from End Times didn't mention Chile, but Chile's young communist version of Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, Gabriel Boric, threatened to invade Brazil if the military prevents the communist Lula from becoming Brazil's president. And it seems like that's the direction Brazil's headed. And let's go to Argentina. This is the BBC from yesterday. Fernandez de Kirchner, Argentina vice president, found guilty of corruption. A court in Argentina has sentenced Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner to six years in jail for corruption in a case that has shaken the country. Fernandez de Kirchner, 69, was found guilty of fraudulent administration over the awarding of public works contracts to a friend, but she is unlikely to serve jail time. She has some immunity via her government roles and is expected to launch a lengthy appeals process. She has also been banned from public office for life, but will continue in her role as vice president while the case goes through higher courts. Sounds like American officials. Prosecutors had sought a 12-year jail sentence. Fernandez de Kirchner said the charges against her were politically motivated. Speaking after the verdict, she described herself as the victim of a judicial mafia, the Associated Press news agency reports. Prior to the ruling, she had also accused the prosecutors of lying and slandering her. It is the first time ever that a vice president has been convicted of a crime while in office in Argentina. Prosecutors said Fernandez de Kirchner had led an unlawful partnership during the time when she was president of Argentina from 2007 to 2015. Sounds a lot like Lula. They said she had created a kickback scheme which steered lucrative public work contracts toward a friend of hers in return for bribes. Sounds like the Bidens. Sounds like what's on Hunter Biden's laptop. Businessman Lazaro Baez, the owner of a construction firm who was accused of being the main beneficiary of the scheme, was also sentenced to six years in prison. He had already been sentenced to 12 years in prison last year for money laundering. And yeah, Fernandez de Kirchner couldn't be guilty. It's definitely a politically motivated hit. And that's why the guy she was running the scheme with is in prison. It's kind of like how Bill and Hillary Clinton run free while Jeffrey Epstein goes to prison where he did not kill himself. And Ghislaine Maxwell goes to prison for trafficking underage girls to totally unknown people. Now, a couple of months ago, the supporters of Fernandez de Kirchner were out there protesting, rioting, because they did not want her to be prosecuted. And I imagine that will be a preview of what we will eventually see here. You can see the same thing in Myanmar, or you could have about a year and a half ago, because they wrapped up on Song Suu Kyi the Obama, Clinton, and Soros-aligned fake president through fraudulent elections of Myanmar. So we have the same story once again, 
playing out in different places along slightly different timelines. But the same story is playing out. Sovereign nationalists are taking their countries back from the global communists. So let's go to Peru. This is yesterday in the New York Times. Peru's president tried to dissolve Congress. By day's end, he was arrested. It was a day on which much of Peru was focused on Congress, where an impeachment vote was planned against the president on corruption charges. But shortly before noon, the Peruvian leader addressed the country in a surprise televised address. He announced the dissolution of Congress and the installation of an emergency government stunning political leaders across the spectrum, including his own allies, by effectively trying to carry out what was widely condemned as an attempted coup to cling to power. This sounds like a preview of something the fake president Joe Biden might do. Keep this in mind as the moment of that draws closer. Government officials resigned en masse. The top court declared the move unconstitutional. And the country's armed forces and the national police issued a joint statement suggesting they would not support him. By day's end, Pedro Castillo, 53, was ousted from power and under arrest. Dina Bularte, his vice president, was sworn in as president and became the first woman to lead Peru. So at least we have some woke wins here and there. It was a cinematic conclusion to Mr. Castillo's presidency, the first leftist to be elected Peru's president in more than a generation. The former farmer, teacher, and union activist had campaigned last year on a pledge to transform the ailing economy and reverse the high rates of poverty among rural Peruvians, which had worsened during the pandemic. Ah, the pandemic. But his attempt to seize power echoed a similar move by former president Alberto Fujimori 30 years ago. Like Mr. Castillo, Mr. Fujimori was a populist outsider who was elected democratically in 1990. Two years later, he staged a coup to shut down Congress with the support of the military and ruled as a dictator until 2000. He is now in prison on charges of corruption and human rights abuses. And jumping down just a bit. Mr. Castillo churned through more than 80 ministers and filled many posts with political allies lacking relevant experience, some of whom have faced investigations for corruption, domestic violence and murder. Again, sounds like the fake Biden administration. Prosecutors accused him of leading a criminal organization with lawmakers and family members to profit off government contracts and of repeatedly obstructing justice, sometimes seemingly in plain view, such as when his daughter disappeared from the presidential palace as she faced arrest and his office later claimed that footage that would have captured the moment went missing. Sounds exactly like the Bidens. And let's take a little flashback and find out under what conditions Castillo assumed the presidency of Peru. Washington calls Peru election fair despite Fujimori claims of voter fraud. This is from June 22nd, 2021 in Reuters. The U.S. State Department said on Tuesday that Peru's recent presidential election was a model of democracy. Despite efforts by conservative candidate Kiko Fujimori to get ballots thrown out while raising accusations of voter fraud, Peruvians went to the polls on June 6th. Election authorities are still evaluating challenges to some ballots, while preliminary results narrowly favor socialist Pedro Castillo over Fujimori, daughter of jailed ex-president Alberto Fujimori. We congratulate the Peruvian authorities for safely administering another round of free, fair, accessible and peaceful elections, even amid the significant challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. State Department spokesman Ned Price said in a statement released in Washington. These recent elections are a model of democracy in the region. We support giving the electoral authorities time to process and publish the results in accordance with Peruvian law. And as I have said many times, you can find basically that same exact Reuters story for any country in the world where the globalists have taken control of the election system. Seriously, just go to any non-Google search engine and you might as well skip over DuckDuckGo as well 
but write in the name of any random country and election fraud and Reuters, and you will probably find this same article with all the details replaced for that individual country. They always say the election is a model for democracy. They did everything. It was incredible. It was fair. It was accessible. It was peaceful. We had great turnout and absolutely no one anywhere would ever question the results of this communist criminal we just put in power again in another country, just like Suu Kyi in Myanmar, just like the president in Burkina Faso, just like Joe Biden, just like the president of Peru and just like Lula. They couldn't just be running the same program everywhere in the world over and over and over again, could they? Yes, they absolutely could. They run the same playbook everywhere. It's the same people calling the shots. They corrupt and compromise officials in countries all around the world so that those people, once they are illegitimately given power, will begin to implement the global agenda on behalf of these same global communists. We should be happy that these people are finally being systematically removed from power around the world. We can see it happening in real time. At what point do you simply stop pretending that nothing is happening just because you are uncomfortable with the story as it's being told to you through the television and your peers, the people that you are around, your city, whatever it is, however you are getting the cultural information that tells you everything is falling apart and nothing is happening, it's time to just reject that. I don't know what else to say. This is country after country after country after country. The exact same thing happening. The same narrative in the same words from the same sources at different times in different places over and over and over. The story is being repeated again and again and again, specified for each different country. If you can't see what's going on, I don't know what to tell you. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. They show it to you over and over and over again. You want to talk about one world global government? The WHO is saying it outright on their website. The only way to be a crazy person about these subjects is to pretend that it's not all happening. At some point, you just got to give it up and be like, oh, wow. Yeah, there really is a lot happening. In fact, we might just be living in one of the greatest times in world history, and I should probably stop whining so much. Now, if you were thinking, is he really going to go through the whole episode without talking about Elon Musk and Twitter? The answer, of course, is no. Elon Musk posted this morning, or I guess late last night, California time, woke versus woke with a picture of the New York Times article talking about how their union, the employees in their union, are staging a one-day walkout. That's really happening. It's happening right now. The New York Times employees have a walkout. And Elon Musk is naturally making fun of it, as anyone should, because the New York Times employees having a walkout is a complete and total farce. Elon also posted in response to an article I'm about to share with you from MSNBC. He posted a picture of what looks like a, a landscape with a canoe and some laundry hanging on a wire. The caption of the picture is only people of culture can see it. And when you look at the picture, it's just a Pepe. So Elon Musk is continuing to post Pepe's, which is incredibly entertaining. And the idea that only people of culture are able to see the Pepe in a landscape picture is really funny. It's the kind of thing that is going to make the communists very, very upset because according to them, Pepe the Frog is white supremacist iconography. So this is from MSNBC today. It sure seems like Elon Musk is purging left-leaning Twitter accounts. Isn't that incredible? This is by Zishan Alim, 
MSNBC opinion columnist. MSNBC is now melting down over communists being censored, according to them. Elon Musk has presented his brief tenure as the CEO of Twitter as a bid to revive free speech on the platform. But there are signs that he is quietly suspending left-leaning Twitter accounts for ideological reasons, while reinstating far-right accounts that broke Twitter's rules in the past. And already the framing is ridiculous. Left-leaning versus far-right. So the left-leaning, they're just like a little bit left of center. Maybe. They seem to be. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. They're just, you know, normal people that might be considered a little bit left. Meanwhile, he just loves those far right accounts. He's a friend to the extremists. It's a deeply worrisome development. Musk has established himself as the fickle king of one of the most influential public squares in the Anglophone world. He currently has absolute power to silence any dissent in a space where news and commentary go a long way towards shaping political possibility. Right now, it looks like he's choosing to intervene against the left while simultaneously reactivating accounts of neo-Nazis and other far-right figures who were generally booted off the platform for hate speech or incitement to violence. The emerging picture is a political agenda to tilt the platform in favor of the far right. And of course, he's talking about people like Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and me. But I wasn't accused of inciting violence or hate speech. And before Elon Musk got there, the censorship environment on Twitter, as stringent as it was, still allowed terrorist organizations on their platform. They left pedophiles and child sexual abuse material on the platform. And they haven't done anything to remove accounts with little Ukraine flag emojis. So they've already been pretty pro-neo-Nazi. According to a report in The Intercept, Musk has suspended several notable left-wing accounts over the past week or so. A number of them were anti-fascist researchers and organizers who focused on documenting far-right activity. They're talking about Antifa accounts. The accounts taken down were Antifa. But you see, Antifa, they're not the fascists. In fact, they're anti-fascist. It says it in their name. So it doesn't matter if the ideology they support is communism or fascism. It only matters that they say they're anti those things. The same way that Ibram X. Kendi, while being one of the most racist people in the world and making absolutely everything about race all the time, is not racist because he says he is anti-racist. Notably, the disabled accounts documented in the report were singled out for criticism by the far-right writer Andy No, who Musk often publicly interacts with on Twitter. Musk invited No to report Antifa accounts that should be suspended directly to him, The Intercept reported. In at least one case, No seems to have succeeded at directing Musk to suspend an account that No failed to get suspended by Twitter before Musk took over the company. So now they even admit it's just Antifa. There have been other puzzling examples of Twitter disproportionately suspending liberal or left-leaning accounts, some of which are just as mysteriously reinstated later for no obvious reason that can be explained by Twitter's terms of service. But one thing two accounts suspended last week had in common is that they both very recently mocked Musk. Got it? So it's not that they're part of a left-wing terrorist organization operating in the United States. It's because they made fun of Elon Musk. These kinds of suspensions have a chilling effect on speech on the platform. I comment regularly on Musk on Twitter and... I'm now more concerned about how I word my critical posts because I fear being kicked off a platform that's essential for my livelihood. That's the MSNBC columnist. These people have promoted censorship for years for people they are ideologically opposed to. But now when it's Antifa, who they clearly feel they align with and they support, they are actually 
preaching the Antifa agenda here by calling them anti-fascist and left-leaning, even though they are the biggest and most violent and most destructive political extremist group in the country. And now he's pretending that he's living in fear about criticizing Elon Musk. Grow up. I've also noticed several examples of Twitter users who find my views objectionable tagging Musk in their responses to my tweets with the intention of getting my account flagged or suspended. Hey, buddy, welcome to everybody else's life. These communists are deranged. The practice of tagging Musk to get his attention illustrates a recognition of the emerging reality that Twitter is being run as a dictatorship. Like any dictator, Musk appears sensitive about his power and arbitrary in his judgments. He's suspending accounts unilaterally without clear explanations. He's threatened permanent bans after users went wild impersonating him. He's making hugely consequential decisions about reinstating political figures who have incited violence like former President Donald Trump through preposterous user polls rigged in favor of an outcome he prefers. This writer is making a lot of baseless claims. These sound like conspiracy theories to me. Twitter is in a state of unusual chaos due to Musk's managerial strategy, which has involved him instantly laying off most of the company's staff. Theoretically, one could give him the benefit of the doubt and surmise that skyrocketing hate speech is a temporary hiccup that necessarily accompanies a massive rehaul of a company that's always been far from perfect. Yes, it's unusual chaos caused by Elon Musk. And that chaos wasn't present before when they were just allowing all of the Antifa domestic terrorists and child pornographers to run rampant on the site. See, that's not chaos. This MSNBC columnist having to worry about what they tweet, that's chaos. Letting the duly elected president of the United States use the platform. That's chaos. But Musk has forfeited his right to that generosity through his own reckless and clearly politically motivated behavior in sabotaging Twitter's verification system, his eagerness to court right wing attention and his open flirtation with white supremacist ideology. In light of his embrace of an authoritarian movement, it seems more than plausible that Musk wants to run Twitter as an authoritarian as well. It's funny, isn't it, that for all of the people who continue to push the notion that the walls are closing in again around Donald Trump, their own actions seem to indicate they really believe that the walls are closing in around them. And the truth is that the walls are closing in around them. Free speech coming back and people beginning to understand what this regime has done and what this media has supported is going to make those walls close in in a real way because these people actually have done all those things, including the politically motivated witch hunts of Donald Trump, for which they continue to believe that the walls are actually closing in, even though they can't actually understand or evidence the underlying crimes that they are accusing Donald Trump of. And we can see the whining and the complaining and the seething and the desperation. We can see the real world action that is putting a stop to these regimes and to this agenda. And we should all be pretty happy about that because it seems like the great communist roundup has begun. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month 
comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!